If you have a Bible, take it and turn to Romans chapter 13. Seems strange not to say Genesis. Um, I was even in Genesis last week as uh, Andrew and I were in Pennsylvania with a group of college kids and was able to... You all got 14 messages on Joseph. They got four. And so condensed things down significantly. Um, but we're going to begin a new series of four messages today. And we'll start here in Romans 13. Uh, we're, we're thinking on the church and the state, the church and the government, the church and politics, however you want to think about it. And I assume that it's fairly obvious in the midst of this election season uh, why I would think it was wise for us to take some time and to pause and think about what God's word says about the relationship between the church and the state. Um, whether we like it or not, the current political landscape is what fills our eyes and our ears on a consistent basis. And so I want us as we hear and as we see these things to be able to answer the question, how do we hear and see them as Christians? Um, how do we speak and act as citizens of God's kingdom who are also citizens of an earthly kingdom? So I'll be clear at the beginning, though, the point of this series of four messages is not to endorse any candidate for any office. Uh, it's not to align with any political party uh, one way or the other, um, except I'll just say this. No, I won't. I'm just kidding. Uh, in fact, I, I don't even know that anything that I say uh, will have much to do with the presidential election or any election for that matter. Uh, my hope is for us to see what scripture is clear on as far as the relationship between the church and the state goes. Um, and I want us to think about how we as followers of Christ who are in a government, how do we live under that in a way that honors God? Um, so I want us to see what we can be clear about with regards to how we think and interact uh, with the government, with the powers that, that be, the authorities that are over us, and how can we glorify God as um, we act towards the state. And I believe Scripture helps us. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to turn to the teachings of Scripture because they give us principles and guidelines for how to live in any and every political environment. The words of Paul that we're going to look at today were not written to Christians in a democracy, uh, let alone Christians in a democracy in the 21st century, and yet they are so applicable to where we are at. In fact, the teachings that we find here are applicable at any time and in any government. The gospel helps us honor God uh, and the governing authorities, whether we live in a monarchy or an oligarchy or a democracy or a dictatorship or in atheistic, communistic countries or in a narco-syndicalist commune somewhere. Uh, that's not to say that these answers will come easily. Um, they are the scriptures are sufficient to help us to know how to make right decisions as we're led by the Spirit. But sometimes making those decisions will be hard, and it will take time thinking and uh, searching out the scriptures. But the sufficiency of scripture is particularly encouraging to me uh, as a pastor because I am well aware that there are many other people in this world that are much better equipped to speak on this topic um, than I am. So my hope is to stick to what I am called to do as a pastor. I am not... Um, well-equipped in engaging necessarily with, with political ideas and structures and things like that. What I want to do is to teach and explain the scriptures as best I can and then shepherd you as God's flock. 
um, that's under Joel and I's care. And so that's that's the goal. Let's just see what Scripture says. What can we be clear on? So we're going to begin with some specific passages. Today we'll be in Romans 13. Next Sunday we'll be in First um, Peter 2 and also a few verses in First Timothy 2. Uh, and then we will think on some broader principles within the whole Bible and trust that God's going to lead us well as we do this. Um, so our task this morning is to understand uh, Romans 13, 1 through 7, and see the clear teaching that's there and also think about some of the questions that come to our minds. Um, so think about the book of Romans. We think about chapters 1 through 11, uh, that the gospel is clearly laid out in those chapters. And then in these final chapters, 12 through 16, uh, we have some real practical application. And Paul begins that practical application in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, by saying this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which he has just talked about, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, and perfect. So these seven verses then in chapter 13 are in many ways an explanation for us of how to renew our minds with regard to our understanding of the role of the state in light of the truth of the gospel. They teach us how to discern God's will with regard to living under governing authorities. How do we live as gospel-shaped people in this world? The key message of Romans 13, 1 through 7, is spelled out very clear right in the first phrase of verse 1. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's a command. The call of this paragraph, then, is for people, all people, literally all souls, and for followers of Christ in particular, to be subject to the governing authorities. And that's the call for us as well. So, very simply, here's the big idea. Live in subjection to the governing authorities. That's what Paul wants us to, to see and to know. Live in subjection. Live under the authority of the governing authorities. Now, as I say that, live in subjection to the governing authorities, there's some questions that probably pop into your head. Like, why? Uh, and the second one might be, how? Uh, both of those are going to be answered. Another question that might arise in your head is, always? Is that always what we're supposed to do? Or maybe you say, no way. Your gut reaction is to reject authority. Or maybe you say, sure, whatever. You know, it's not a big deal to you. And so my hope as we read this passage is to try to answer some of those questions clearly and then to give some corrections maybe to some of those reactions. So Romans 13, 1 through 7, let's read it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, 
taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So you can see that this command, live in subjection to the governing authorities, is the focus of the passage. It's there in verse 1, but then it's also reiterated in verse 5. You see that? Therefore, one must be in subjection. So he gives the command, says why, and then repeats that same command. And so verses 1 through 4 are going to help us answer the why question. Why should we live in subjection? And then verses 6 and 7 are going to give us some specific answers to the how how does it, what will it look like for us to live in subjection? Um, and so let's begin with that why question. So the big idea, live in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? And Paul is going to give us um, three reasons that sort of build upon each other. Okay. And so the first reason that we should live in subjection to the governing authorities is, number one, all authority is from God and established by him. If you want to keep it simple, you can just say all authority is from God. But it's also established by him. It, it flows from God and is put in place by him. All authority is from God and established by him. See that in verse 1. It's the second phrase, second sentence. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. It's stated negatively, no authority is there except from God, and positively, those that are in authority have been put instituted by God. So there's different authorities in the world, right? Uh, different people or entities with power and, and authority. You might think about your workplace. So there's a chain of authority in the place that you work. You might um, have some authority over certain people, and those under you uh, listen to what you say. But they listen to you, why? Because you have been given authority by someone who is higher. And maybe you have to listen to certain people because they have been given authority in the structure of that business over you. Have you ever been told to do something by someone who has no authority over you? Probably all have. And what do you do? Well, you don't listen to them because they don't have any authority over you. And they can't punish you at all. They can't bring any consequences on you. And your conscience is clear because they don't have any power over you. Even kids know this, right? So someone in the playground tells them, you have to do this. What do they say? You're not the boss of me. Or, you're not my mom. <laughs> so they understand that there are structures of authority. And God has set up varying authorities and structures of authority in his world. So from the very beginning, Adam is given authority over creation. In the family, there's authority structures. The husband is to lovingly lead his wife, and the wife is to be subject to her husband. Children are to obey their parents as an authority. Employees are to obey their bosses. Scripture is clear on that. Even within the church, God has established authority. Uh, the structure of elders are to lovingly lead as under-shepherds of God who is the chief shepherd. And whatever authority humans and husbands and parents and employers and elders have, it finds its source in God. All authority is from God including the governing authorities. So this is Paul's point in verse 1, but it's not original to him. It's throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. So you remember Nathan confronts King David because of his adultery and his murder. And what does he say? 2 Samuel 12, 7 through 8, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. 
And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Any authority David had, God gave it to him. Proverbs 8, 15 and 16 says, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. Daniel, in Daniel 2, 20 and 21, we read this to open the service. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament emphasizes this. So Jesus stands bound before Pilate, who is going to kill him. And what does he say? You have no authority over me. You would have no authority over me, except that God has given it to you. Herod, in Acts 12, is killed by God. Why? Because he doesn't acknowledge that the power and authority he has is from God. Even if you look at Revelation 13, the beast in Revelation 13, I'm not going to say who it is or what it is, but the beast over and over again is said to be allowed to do what he does. So the beast has no power unless God permits him to have power. God is in control of all authority. He puts kings on the throne and he removes kings from the throne. Why? Because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. No matter who they are, or how they rule, all authority is from God and established by him. How comforting that is. Isn't that good to know? There has never been and there will never be a person placed in power over us or over any nation who is not established by God. You can go back in history and you'll get a headache thinking about it, but that is true. They may be for our thriving, they may be for our judgment, but they are established by the God who is able to turn all things for good. So therefore, you have no reason to be afraid. You have no reason to worry, to be angry, or to despair. And you have no reason to really rejoice or find your hope in any earthly authority that shows up. Because everyone is placed there by God and is under his ultimate authority. So, no matter who they are, all authority is from God and established by him. That's Paul's first point when we're thinking about why should we live in subjection? Because all authority is from God and, and, and they are established by him. Flowing from that, the second point is to resist any authority, therefore, is to resist God. To resist any authority is to resist God. This is verse 2, the first part. Therefore, whoever resists the authority. So, therefore, that tells us this is flowing from that big idea. Therefore, whoever resists these authorities, who have been established by God, resists what God has appointed. If all authorities are put in place by God, then to resist those authorities is ultimately to resist God. We see Adam and Eve. They disobey God's command to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they rebel against his authority. They say, we know what's best. This is what needs to happen. We see in that act that every act of sin is rebellion, whether it's directly against God or against the authorities that he has established. It is rebellion. So children, when you disobey your parents who have been put in authority over you, 
you are disobeying God because he is the higher authority. At work, when you rebel against your boss, whatever he or she is like, they are an authority over you, and by rebelling against them, you are rebelling against God. And when we rebel against the rulers and the laws of the nation in which we live, we are rebelling against God. To break the laws established by those in authority over us is to rebel against God. Now we're going to think about that. That may You're saying, eh, but just Paul is very clear. No caveats here. The opposite, of course, is, is true as well, right? To obey an authority put over us, to obey the governing authorities, is to obey God. When we submit to the laws of the land in which we live, we are submitting to God. So why do we need to submit to governing authorities? Follow this chain. All authority is given by God. Therefore, to resist governing authorities is to resist God, and to obey them is to obey God. And then third, Paul shows us resistance brings judgment, and obedience brings blessing. Resistance brings judgment. Obedience brings blessing. We see that in the end of verse 2. Those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the authority given to the governed authorities by God is seen primarily in their role of bringing judgment on those who resist and rebel against the laws of the land and giving approval to those who obey the laws of the land. So they are God's representatives. The passage calls them servants of God. Not just servants. Did you see in verse 6 what it calls them? Ministers. They are ministers of God. And as such, they bear the sword. And Paul says the sword that they're wearing is not just for show, it's, it's to be justly used by governing authorities. Now, this surely carries the idea of capital punishment, which we're not going to talk about this morning. Um, but it also extends to all other forms of punishment that the government would enact on those who disobey the laws of the land. The state draws on the authority that they have been given by God and is called to be God's representative on earth and bring judgment and blessing. And since rebellion against the state is rebellion against God, then the punishment of the state is God's punishment on that rebellion. Paul then says this shouldn't be an issue if you're doing what's right. No problem, right? There's no need to fear the state if you're not rebelling against it. You're driving down the highway. You're going 33 in a 35 mile per hour zone, and you see the cop on the side of the road, and you just drive by. No problem. You're on that same road. And you go 55, and you see the cop. And what happens? Your stomach drops out from underneath you, and you grab the wheel, and you hit the brakes, and you start sweating like crazy. Oh, no, what did I just do? Why? Because you're doing what's wrong. Because you have disobeyed the the God-given authority of what the speed limit is, and that person is, is employed by the state, is given power by the state to come and to bring judgment upon you in the form of a speeding ticket. This is true of all the laws that we might break. And so Paul's admonition is simple. If you don't want to fear the government, don't break the law. (laughs) It's very simple. 
The solution to the fear of government is not to take away their authority. That's often the place we go. Well, I don't want people to have authority over me. That's not the solution that Paul gives here. If we don't want to fear the government, it's not, well, take away their authority because that's what makes them scary. No, just do what's right. In fact, the government is also supposed to commend and recognize those who do right. I wonder how things would change if those in authority had quotas, not only for pointing out the wrong in the way that people break the laws, but what if they had quotas for identifying people that were rule keepers, who were law-abiding citizens, and they were to commend them? Might be nice. Now, the, the deeper thing that's going on here is that this is all foreshadowing what is to come when God, who is the, the source of all authority, calls us to stand before him. And of course, when that happens, we realize that we are all lawbreakers. We have all rebelled, and we should all be afraid of the sword of his wrath because the penalty for breaking God's law is death, and we all deserve it. This is the hope of the gospel that comes in even here, that there is one who never broke the law of God once. Jesus was condemned. Imagine this. Jesus is condemned by an earthly government, given its power by God, even though he had done nothing that deserved death. But he is crucified, and in his death he bears our sins. He bears all of our rebellion, whether it's directly against him or whether it's against any of the authorities that he has established. He bears the guilt of that. And by faith, then, we are able to stand before God without fear. Not because we have never sinned and rebelled, but because he has never sinned. And not because we don't deserve judgment, because he bore our judgment. And we will be held accountable. We will be held accountable for the deeds that we do in the body, for every idle word, good or bad. Our salvation, though, is not rooted in whether or not we're good citizens or good people. It's rooted in the fact that Jesus was perfect and that he died for my sins, is resurrected and offers salvation to everyone who repents and believes. And if we are those who are saved by his grace through the cross, then we are called to live under his authority. And part of his authority is the government in which we live. He has established it. And we live under his authority. He's established this authority. So we obey as to him. So, live in subjection to the governing authorities. That's the big idea. Paul tells us why. Because all authority is established by God. Therefore, to resist those authorities is to resist God. To obey them is to obey God. And we know that rebellion brings judgment. And obedience brings blessing. So Paul then sort of repeats his command, having said that in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection. And then he summarizes the why question, the why answer to this why question with two phrases. Why should we do it? Number one, to avoid God's wrath. I think he means to avoid the judgment that's enacted by the state that has been given authority from God to do so, who is therefore an extension of God's wrath. So we obey to avoid God's wrath. And secondly, for the sake of our conscience. So our obedience to the state is not simply to avoid punishment, but because as followers of God, we desire to do what is right. We desire to honor and obey God. In other words, fear is not the only motivator. Fear is always a bad motivator if it's the only motivator. It's one thing, but it's not the only thing. 
and our conscience that we've been given by God and that has been renewed by the indwelling Holy Spirit tells us that we are to obey God and therefore we are to obey God-given authorities. So Paul calls us to submit to the governing authorities. He tells us why. And then in verses 6 and 7, he tells us some ways of how. So the main command, let every person be subject, and that's repeated in verse 5, therefore one must be in subjection. The, the second command is in verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. And that command flows from verse 6, where we find that part of what we are to pay and part of the way that we submit to the state is by paying taxes. Now this recalls to mind the words of Jesus. We studied them in Luke 20, where uh, the Pharisees come to him and they're trying to trap him. And they say, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus points out whose face is on the coin. It's Caesar's face. And Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And we asked as we went through that passage, we said, well, what is Caesar's? We answered it in three ways. We said, ultimately, nothing is Caesar's. Secondly, what God gives Caesar is Caesar's. So he has given him something. And, and thirdly, fading things are Caesar's. So the things that really don't matter that much. Um, so we owe taxes to the state because that's what God has ordained. He has given them the authority to collect money so that they can properly judge and, and condemn and, and, and rule the society in which we live. But if that's what belongs to Caesar, namely nothing, what God gives him and fading things like money, what belongs to God? Well, everything is the Lord's, including everything that he gives to Caesar. And God is the one who owns the internal things, and he is the one that we are ultimately responsible for. We owe all things to God. And in his wisdom, he has called us to submit to the governing authorities by giving them taxes and revenue when they ask of it. Now, having said that, if I'm reading the tone of Jesus' words right, he seems to say this is kind of a non-issue. It's like, don't really think about this that much. He says, yeah, pay your taxes. Yeah, do that. Of course do that. But give to God what is God's. That's the most important thing. Even the story, you remember where Peter is told to, to pay his taxes? Where do they get the money for the taxes? Out of the mouth of a fish. I just feel like that's kind of... Yeah, whatever. This is what we'll give him. We'll give him stuff that's, you know, a fish was going to digest. You know, Jesus brings no caveats or times when we don't pay taxes. Jesus paid taxes to the government who would later kill him. Paul did the exact same thing. And both of them seem to just say, pay your taxes. That's what we do. Along with that, not just paying taxes, we are to honor and respect those in in governing authority over us. Are we to do it because they are respectable? Maybe. Hopefully. But ultimately we do it because they are ministers of God. And that's what makes them worthy of our respect and our honor. We don't pay taxes to Caesar ultimately out of obedience to Caesar. We pay taxes to Caesar out of obedience to God. In the same way, we don't ultimately give honor and respect to those that are in authority over us out of honor and respect for them. We do it out of honor and respect for God, who has established those authority authorities. I just, as I was thinking about that, how, how are we doing on that? How are we doing on showing honor and respect to the governing authorities? How do we speak about those in authority over us? How do we talk about public servants? 
How do we speak about the president? How do we speak about others in offices above us? Do we do it in a way recognizing that they have been established by God? So the command of the passage, live in subjection to the governing authorities. Why? Because all authority is established by God. Therefore, obedience or resistance against authorities uh, is obedience or resistance to God. And the state has the right to punish or condemn those who resist or obey. How do we submit? By giving to the governing authorities what is due to them. Now, this is the question we all want to get to. Always? Is that always the case? And I believe the answer is almost, almost always. Paul seems to say this way of thinking and this way of acting is normative. There may be exceptions, but usually we are able to submit and to live at peace, to pay our taxes, to give honor, and to give respect. That's usually the case. Think about the government Paul is under, Nero who's going to kill massive numbers of Christians. And he's saying, I can pay my taxes. I can live in subjection to these authorities. Now, for some of you, maybe I can say for some of us, words like obedience, difficult to swallow. I knew a, a lady and she just had a visceral reaction to the word obedience. And the thought of Jesus and Paul telling us to submit to the governing authorities, that's just kind of hard to swallow. Uh, and I understand that. You know, few of us like being told what to do in general, right? We've all got a little revolutionary streak in us. That's a positive way of saying it. We've all got a little sinful, rebellious streak in us that doesn't want to listen to authority. But authority is not the problem, right? Authority is not the issue. Because who has all authority? God has all authority. And, and God, with complete authority, is perfectly just and righteous in his use of it. Where's the problem with authority come? It comes when sinful people are given authority or asked to live underneath authority. Is there a problem with the authority structure in marriage? No. The problem is with the, the, the human heart that abuses authority. Is there a problem with the authority between parents and children? No, there is no problem with that. It, it helps us function well. The problem is when parents misuse that authority, when anger or selfishness drives us, or the problem is when children don't submit to that authority, when anger or selfishness drives them. Is there a problem with the authority of the state? No. When it's functioning right, there is no problem. The problem is that that power is given to people who are marred and scarred by sin. Even then, it's almost always possible to obey. Uh, especially, let's be honest, especially in a place like the United States. As much as we want to complain about what's going on, the amount of freedom that we have in comparison to the world is amazing. And we can submit very easily in most circumstances. I invite you, maybe in a small group discussion, to think, how would someone in a persecuted nation how would these words be a comfort to them? And I think they are a comfort to them. I think they are meant to be a help to those, especially who live under governments where maybe they don't have a lot of freedom. But it is conceivable that things could come to the place where some form of resistance would be 
necessary. And as you think about that, I think contained within the passage are the two keys as we think about that kind of resistance. And they are, they both begin with C conveniently. They are the commands of God and the conscience that he has given us. So when we think about always, we can think about God's commands and we can think about conscience. So we're called to submit to governing authorities and it's assumed that they are not commanding things that are contrary to the things that God is commanding because God's law is is higher. In other words, if the governing authorities are a lower authority, they're given their authority by God and they ask us to do something that this higher authority, God, has forbidden or that God has told us to do, then we don't listen to this lower authority, right? We do what the higher authority says, because that is where the power and the authority comes from. And we do it. We obey God, recognizing that this authority may punish us for disobeying. And we recognize that. Two examples from Scripture that come to mind. Uh, One you probably learned in Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. However you say that. Abednego, or I don't know. Abednego. And, the, and, and then we also think about the early church. But think about Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're commanded to do something that God had forbidden. Bow down to this idol. So what do they do? They refuse because they will obey God before they will obey the government. And so what does God do? He preserves them in the face of death. So much so that Nebuchadnezzar and the entire state glorify God. God gathers worshipers for himself through his people rebelling against that lower authority that had gone past what God had said to do. It's an amazing story. We also see in the early church, though, that so so they were told to do something that God told them not to do. In the early church, the early church is told to not do something that God had told them to do. So the government comes in and says, stop talking about Jesus. But what had Jesus said? Keep telling everyone about me. And so what do they say? Acts 4, 19 and 20, Peter and John say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I love that. In both circumstances, they obey the commands of God rather than the governing authorities, but they're also willing to take whatever punishment may have come to them. Do you ever see a jailbreak in the early church? No. Either they're miraculously delivered by God, uh, the authorities let them go, or they're killed. But they obey God's commands, and then they prepare for suffering. So we have God's commands, and this is sort of a no-brainer in many ways, right? I will listen to God if it contradicts the governing authorities. If I am commanded to do or not do something that God has told me to not do or to do, I will do what God says, because he is the higher authority. And that makes sense within this structure, don't you see? So if the if the authority comes from God, He's given lower authority. This authority rebels against God. I listen to God. Of course. Conscience is a little bit different. God has given us a conscience. And we see that's a key part of why we submit. We submit because of our conscience. But it may be that conscience would call us not to submit, but to resist. Conscience may call us to peacefully protest the governing authorities. To stand up against injustices that we see. We can think about this with issues like abortion. 
We can think about this with issues of, of racism or a host of other causes. Now, for the most part, we're not commanded to do something that, that, we, that we are said, you must do this or you will be punished. Okay. But these are causes that we can stand up for conscience sake and say, listen, government authority, this is wrong. I think, for instance, of the fact that governing authorities are not supposed to be a cause for fear to people who do right, right? You don't have to fear the government if you're doing what's right. What if you're doing what's right and you're afraid of the government? What if the powers that be start striking fear into the heart of some citizens, not because they're doing things that are wrong, but because of the way they dress, because of the color of their skin? This is a, a, an issue in our day, and that's a concern for many people. The response is not to revolt. It's not vigilante justice, but there are ways for us to say, conscience tells me, government, that this is not right. There's something wrong here. That's one example, and I can give you countless hypothetical and real situations. But it also kind of reminds me of another thing that conscience calls us to, to think about that Paul didn't necessarily worry about, and that's voting. I think conscience is key there. There's no command to vote. Um, but I, I think that we can trust that God has established the governing authorities for our good, and we are able to use whatever power we have within our conscience to, to vote, to seek the peace and the justice uh, that we love and that, that God desires in this world. And that's part of what our conscience is, is called to do. Now, conscience is like a Pandora's box, isn't it? You know, and as we're walking with God uh, and walking by the Spirit, hopefully our conscience is in tune with His. But remember, to resist authority in almost every circumstance, is to resist God. And so we need to be very careful and very prayerful about how we do that and how we go about it. And I, I just come back then that we raise these questions, but let's remember that most often the governing authorities are a gift from God, and we are called to submit to them with fear and reverence for the sake of conscience. Does that mean they're perfect? Never in the entire history of the world. But as we submit to them, God is honored because God is the source of all authority. And of course, we wait for the day when there is no more election. Won't that be a wonderful day? And I'm not just talking about November 9th. I'm talking about the day when no more election is necessary because King Jesus, the source of all authority, is takes his place on the throne and he has a term that lasts for eternity and we will never want to vote anyone else into office and the world is transformed into the place of peace and righteousness that we desire it to be until then we live under this authority and we wrestle but for the most part we submit not out of just blind allegiance to some government but out of love to God, out of respect for God, out of honor to God as the source of all authority. And we deal with questions of conscience, and we deal with questions of are we being commanded to do something contrary to God's law. But we realize that our God is, is good, and he has put these things in place, and he will guide us by his spirit to know what to do and how to act, how to vote, and how to resist, and how not to resist, and how to have the right attitude.
And he'll do it until the day that he makes it all right. I hope I've sparked questions because this is something to continue to discuss. There's things that are clear, but there's things that we can continue to discuss. And so I invite you to ask me those questions and we will continue. Um, you can read First Peter 2, which is very similar to this passage. It would be helpful um, to think through that before we uh, meet together next time. But um, let's close with a, a moment of silence and then I will, I will pray for us. Lord God, we are so grateful for your word and that it's clear. It is it is so clear in many ways. We recognize, Lord, that there are so many questions in this life that we won't have complete answers to and there's difficult situations, but there's so many ways that you have given us a, a clear way to think about authority in this world, to imagine thousands of years later that this is what we look to. And it, it works. It fits. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that it, it fits in any context. Lord, we thank you for the gift of authority. We thank you that um, you have not created this world without structures of authority, but you've given them to us for our good. And all the weaknesses we see in it, Lord, reminds us of what we long for and we hope for, that one day all will be made right and you will be king. And we will gladly submit to your rule because it will be perfect and righteous and holy and full of grace and full of truth. Lord, guide our minds and our hearts as we continue to think on these things this morning and throughout this week and in the coming weeks. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As we go, let us joyfully live under the authority of he who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen.